0: daw daw down, daw down down, down daw and down, 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 down it down, it down, dump it it down, it down, dump it down, down, dump dump down, dump it dump it down, dump it dump down, dump down, dump up, dump 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 it dump dump up, dump it dump 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 it up, it up,
1: This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, and somewhere in western Los Angeles, created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to create a rehab that treats addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. Well, it seems like they pulled it off because they were rated in Newsweek the number one rehab in the country. And they didn't ask me to say that. I'm just saying it because we, we found that out, like, on the sly. They, uh... They really want to have a suffering addict or alcoholic find the best version of themselves. They have amazing amenities. They have sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, of course, the potentially transformative spiritual sweat lodge. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, and they have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating addiction and co-occurring orders, including SMI. And if you're fucked and you're willing to get help, I highly suggest going out to Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our great friends at SoberLink. As we all know, addiction is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. Nearly 15 million people in the United States have an alcohol use disorder, which is alcohol only, not other drugs. Only 10% of these people get treatment. This can be attributed to the stigma that surrounds addiction and how people don't want to talk about it. Soberlink supports the no-judgment zone that is dopey and strives to erase the stigma of alcohol addiction. Their remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people to be more accountable in their sobriety. The Dopey Podcast was founded with open and honest conversations about addiction and recovery, and Soberlink encourages this to help rebuild trust and maintain sobriety. Dopey has teamed up with Soberlink to create a healthy habits guide for those in recovery. Visit www.soberlink.com to download the healthy habits guide. And if you or someone you know can benefit from accountability for alcohol recovery, you'll also find a form on that page to sign up for a $50 off promo code exclusive to you guys in the Dopey Nation. So again, go to SoberLink.com and let SoberLink help you to stay off of the sauce. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by knocking doors down. A podcast with the mission to end the stigma around addiction and mental health with humorous, honest, and vulnerable conversations featuring guest celebrities, experts, and everyday people. Celebrity guests sharing their stories of addiction and mental health issues include Charlie Sheen, Bam Margera, Kelly Osborne, AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, Cheryl Burke from Dancing with the Stars, Scott Stapp from Creed, Kat Von D, and me, Dave, from The Dopey Show. It is hosted by Jason. Uh, who's in recovery for addiction, childhood trauma, sexual trauma, and a family lineage of addiction. It's co-hosted by Mikey, who struggles with substance abuse and mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. Knocking Doors Down is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can see videos by going to kddpodcast.com. I am so excited that We have Sober Buddy back as a sponsor of Dopey. I know I've talked to you guys about the Sober Buddy app before, and I think you should check it out, but what I really want to tell you about today is that Sober Buddy has just opened up a crowdfunding campaign that allows you to own a piece of the company, which is really cool. You help them raise the money they need, and they give you shares. It's a win-win. And you guys can buy shares in their crowdfunding offering and raise capital for future expansion. You can find the link to the new campaign At the Dopey website, which of course is dopeypodcast.com, or on their website, which is yoursoberbuddy.com, Sober Buddy has already helped over 30,000 people on their sober journey, and this is your chance to help them get their app out to even more people. So check it out. Give them some love to support a product that helps people achieve sobriety, which is what we're all about. And sign up for their app so you can have your own sober buddy, too. We couldn't be more excited. The Zencaster podcasting platform is still a sponsor for Dopey. And if you want to get the the discounted rate, I need copy. We are also super excited because Dopey is sponsored by the revolutionary Zencaster podcasting platform. Check out the Dopey discount code in our show notes and stay tuned for why we cannot say enough great stuff about Zencaster. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and it's later than it's been in a long time when I've recorded Dopey. It is nighttime, and I'm on Long Island. I'm in the Dopey YouTube studio, which is also like our garbage room, which is also the room that leads up to the attic. And if you haven't seen, all the dopey YouTube stuff, please go to YouTube and subscribe to the dopey podcast channel where you could find me reading all the fucking, uh, daily reflections. I've done every day, a daily reflection from October 31st through, I think we're up to almost like, we're definitely up till now. So go check it out. We've been tasting ice cream flavors. The, the mission is to taste every Ben and Jerry's flavor, uh, in the world, and then go to Burlington and have Ben and Jerry's create a dopey flavor. So follow the YouTube channel. I'm very excited. It's an experiment. Please let me know what you think. Welcome to the show. I hope you are well. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Dopey Reddit because I'm one of the the people who follow the Dopey Podcast Reddit. And the Dopey Podcast Reddit group, they have a lot of heart, you know, For a little while, they had a lot of moxie, and then something happened, and they've kind of faded out, but a few of them are still in there fighting. I want to give a huge shout-out to Cormac for keeping Dopey Podcast Reddit going. I want to give a shout-out to everyone in Reddit, New York Upstate Engineer, Beach Stoop. You guys know who you are. If you're, if you're a Reddit person and you're a Dopey person, go check them out and, and bring some life back to this Dopey Reddit community. I also want to give a shout out to Br'er Brian Homa. Br'er, Br'er Brian Hama or Homa, I don't know why, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He is the the guitar player that does all of the Dopey Dopey songs at the beginning. Today he did the mashup of California Dreamin' and one of my all-time favorite TV show theme songs, and also AA cliches, One Day at a Time. And I just love Brian's music. Check him out. He's on Bandcamp and SoundCloud and Facebook, and he's a trooper and a very, very talented guy. And, of course, the reason that Br'er did his Mamas and Papas One Day at a Time mashup is because our guest today is dopey legend and incredibly sought-after guest, Mackenzie Phillips. And I grew up watching One Day at a Time. I grew up, as a lot of you know, in front of the TV, and One Day at a Time was one of the staples in our home. And I love the show, I love the theme song, I loved the dynamic, and uh, it was just part of the bedrock of my life. And as I got older, my, my, you know, I wasn't a big Mamas and the Papas fan, but as I got older, one of my very, very, very favorite TV shows was Behind the Music. And when I saw the Mamas and the Papas Behind the Music, it blew my mind because it's like the dopiest story imaginable where basically John Phillips, who's Mackenzie's father, is this big time folk singer in New York City and he puts together this group. He writes California. I mean, that's a classic story in itself. He's, he's like in an apartment in New York City with Michelle Phillips. He wakes up Michelle in the middle of the night and he says, hey, baby, get a pencil and write this down. And uh, and then. Later on in life, John Phillips said that wake-up call made Michelle Phillips a millionaire many times over because he split the credit with her on the song because she wrote down the lyrics. And the Mamas and the Papas like didn't get going. Like All this fate and luck and magic influenced the Mamas and the Papas' career. Like They didn't have any money. They didn't know what to do, so they spun a globe, put their finger on it. They landed in, I think, Tahiti, went down to Tahiti, Mama Cass joined them. They're practicing in some shitty club called Duffy's. In, in the in the great rock and roll story, a pipe falls on Mama Cass's head. She couldn't sing the harmony. A pipe falls on her head and all of a sudden she magically is transformed. Then they don't have any money to get home. They wind up in some casino in Puerto Rico where Michelle Phillips rolls like straight sevens in roulette, makes enough money for them to get home, where they famously audition for Lou Adler and become rock and roll royalty. And then John Phillips goes on to become like the worst drug addict in the history of the world. And I was—I mean, like they had a song called "Creek Alley" where the chorus was uh, "No one's getting fat, but Mama Cass." And I always felt bad for Mama Cass with that song. And "Monday, Monday," I never really understood, but I loved that song. But "California Dreamin'" really resonated with me. Everything about it, and and pretending to pray—I I just it resonated with me. And for some reason, I always thought I could sing the song really well. So, and it was also one of the first songs that I learned to play on guitar. And I was the fucking idiot that when I went to rehab, or even if I went to detox, I would bring my guitar. And, you know, I know a lot of you probably have a negative opinion of that kind of thing. And I kind of have a little bit of shame about it. But the truth in it is that. When I would go away in my mind I had such grandiosity that I would leave rehab like with it, like totally like in shape having read a book and having written enough songs to to make a classic album like that's the grandiosity in my head that if if only I could get away with my guitar I'd come up with something magical and the funny thing was that every time I went to rehab I would bust out California Dreamin' and me and the junkies in the spot in detox or rehab, there'd always be at least five addicts and alcoholics who were willing to, to lay it down. And um, I love that shit. I love that community spirit, like that uh, the spirit of us quote-unquote losers finding the spirit of love. And I think the mamas and the papas are very much that spirit, and our guest today is the direct offspring of that spirit. But before we get to the lovely and talented Mackenzie Phillips, one more word about Zencaster, which is, if you know me, you know how obsessed I am with making Dopey. And if you know Dopey, you know we've had our issues with our audio quality, which is why we are so excited to begin a partnership with Zencaster. They are a superior podcasting platform with crystal clear audio and video. If you are a podcaster or want to start your own podcast, I sincerely suggest trying Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com and use the promo code DOPEYPODCAST to save a whopping 30%. And now that we've taken care of our business, we have a really, really special one for you guys. Here you go, Dopey Nation. What you've all been waiting for, Mackenzie Phillips. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Yes. Hey, wait, don't say anything. I want to make a big, a big thing. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Our guest, I've been, I've been like... I don't know. I've been enthralled with our guests since I was a teenager, I would imagine. And you are the fucking, I mean, (laughs) in in terms of Dopey guests, you have the fucking goods. I'm not going to say another word except she's a crazy big TV star, musician, best-selling author, now like a, a big wig in a rehab counselor, fucking Mackenzie Phillips. Welcome to Dopey. Thank you so much. You have been stalking me, and I finally capitulated. <laughs> what happened? How did it? How did? Candace texted me. I like I had to like punch myself in the face. What happened?
2: <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I just thought, you know what? It, it, everybody loves dopey Podcast, and I should go hang out for a
1: minute. Wow, I'm I'm beyond honored. Like I grew up watching One Day at a Time, and I used to get high watching. Uh, behind the music and uh, the E True Hollywood story. And like. That's so funny because I used to shoot up. I used to shoot Coke while reading.
2: Uh, Nikki, I used to shoot speedballs while reading the Heroin Diaries by Nikki
1: Sixx. The Heroin Diaries was like responsible for my one of my last relapses. My wife, we just had gotten a baby. My wife bought me the Heroin Diaries for Christmas, not realizing what it might do. (laughs) I'm walking to work. Somebody offered me Xanax and I was done. How was it for you when, like before we get into all of the incredible craziness that is your life, family, and history, how did you deal with behind the music and the E! True Hollywood story and all that stuff?
2: Well, when I did all of those, I was in in a recovery. Mm. I was in recovery. So I did, you know, E! True Hollywood story, um, Lifetime Intimate Portrait, and A&E biography, all within the space of maybe three years. And here's what those people used to do. They would say, they would contact my agent and say, hey, we're doing this, and... We're going to do it whether she's involved or not, mm. but she might want to be involved so she could, you know, sort of spin it, you know, otherwise we're, we're just doing it without her. And so I was like, shit, okay, fine, fuckers. And so I did them. Um, and, but I was, you know, I was in recovery and then, and then, uh, you know, as, as, as happens, um, I had a pretty, pretty intense relapse and, you know, and um, not because of those, certainly not, but, you know, uh, life, life is unpredictable. And, you know, if you're not doing the deal, um, you can't weather the storm and... I
1: couldn't and I didn't. And then I came back and which took years. Well I think the interesting thing is that they happened in the window of sobriety. So you have the spirit of recovery in you in those shows. And it's like Yes, absolutely. But it creates like that's that's the hardest part, I think, or one of the hardest parts I'd imagine being in the public eye and an addict. Like that, you can be in recovery and then it, it you relapse, and then it's all of a sudden everyone needs to know what happened, and you're you're accountable to the world in public.
2: Well, that you make a really good point there, but you know, I th- here's what I think. I think that it, although you know, people people used to say, oh, well, you know, you, you we're anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film, right? Which I always have been. I've never said specifically mm-hmm. um, about you know, the, the secret society of recovering people. Totally. Um, but, um, I think, you know, it, it actually has a way of normalizing the trajectory of addiction and recovery for the greater public, you know,
1: I, explain that, that some more.
2: Okay. So someone can be like, like, this makes me think of, um, was it Macklemore who was like you know the sober guy and and then he went to a meeting and he had his hoodie up and he had you know was just coming off a relapse but he hadn't publicly talked about it and some kid came up to him and said at the meeting and said you're my hero man if you can do it I can do it and he felt like such a piece of garbage right. because you know and so when we are transparent about our experiences and i think you know as time has gone on you know the the public consciousness is more uh aware and we're chipping away at the stigma but you know as time goes on it normalizes the fact that addiction and recovery aren't always linear
1: totally You you, you know what I'm saying? quite often not linear. And if you're not constantly working at it, it's so easy for it to erode. And your story is just so nuts. And I think I was so (laughs) – It it, really is completely fucking nuts. It really is. And I think I was particularly attracted to your story – because like my 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 family's like the squares family in the world, like super middle class Jewish family in New York City. My parents were both teachers. But if I and my mother died uh, a while ago, but before she died, if you had asked her who she liked to listen to, she would have said the mamas and the papas. And right. And so I, I just imagine they were this really square group. And uh, and me and my sister would lie in my parents' bed and watch you on one day at a time. So this your world was implanted on me in my childhood. Your 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 father's group and your TV show. And then right. when I started to discover the debauchery built in and I started using, I just it was like it didn't seem to go together California dreaming, Monday Monday and shooting dope. You know what I mean in my right. mind?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And he's such a—he's like your dad was such a legendary uh, musician, songwriter, harmony master, and then such a pro- prodigious drug addict. But I didn't even—I—I uh, I, I didn't expect that. So when I started to uncover the story, I couldn't believe what I found. And, and you grew up in it. Like if, if when I read High on Arrival, I mean I've been I've been waiting and and uh, diving <laughs> into the Mackenzie Phillips ocean for a while, uh, but uh-huh. High on Arrival is such an incredible book. It's thank you. It's 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 riveting, painful, and and rollicking. <laughs> it's a rollicking As, ride,
2: and ultimately, you know, triumphant. So, you know that there's there's that that sort of spiritual redemption um
3: totally
1: but have you have you read papa john my I, dad's book I, I hate i hate to tell you but i have it was like <laughs> it, it's, such oh god, it's, it's such a crazy book oh my god it's such a
2: crazy book it's like
1: 700 pages long it, and it's like you i did not expect to find what i found in there and it's like debauchery with a capital d when people yeah. ask me about drug memoirs i go straight to your dad's book i used to harass David Crosby on Twitter and ask him who was the worst junkie, your dad or Rick James, until he blocked me on Twitter because he (laughs) didn't want me to bother him with John Phillips questions. But you grew up in it, you know, like so. Like let's talk about it because I think our audience cannot, won't be able to believe the, the depths, you know.
2: Uh, they, could, they could also, you know, get the book, but we can t- certainly talk about it.
1: Right. Buy the book. Before you do anything else, buy the book and buy the Audible because you read the Audible so beautifully. And when I'm not walking around Manhattan, I'm reading the book. So I did both, just so you know. Wow. That's a true fan right here.
2: Uh, truly. How old are you, Dave?
1: I'm 47. Oh, my
2: God. So you watched reruns of one day at a time on your parents' bed.
1: No, I watched the real thing. I mean, it came out. I, I, I was I was raised by the television with my parents., okay. you know what I mean, like okay. the television was like my surrogate parent. I, I I like when I think about your relationship with Norman Lear, it boggles my mind because he's such a, a a genius. You were around so much genius. Um, growing up in your dad's house, right? when when the Beatles and the Stones are there and everyone is high, do you remember ha- how that could feel normal?
2: Well, you know, here's the deal. It was normal to me. It was normal to me. It was my life, you know. And, and, and granted, I mean, I lived with my mom during the week who was a hardcore alcoholic, but, you know, wore pearls and diamonds and you know, uh, uh, was sort of fancy, but then I'd go to my dad's on the weekend and it was like going to Disneyland. It was like going to, uh, you know, an alternate universe. Um, and it was wild and it was, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's not something, you know, let let me preface what I'm going to say by saying this, let's look at the framework around everybody's lives, right? You grew up in a Jewish home in New York City Square, parents, that's your framework, very sort of normal, right? Mm -hmm. My framework, very, very different, right? Mm -hmm. Very, very different. But the, the addiction and the disease and the feelings and the thoughts and the compulsion are the same. So when we look at someone right? Who like, like, uh, like me who grew up with a dad who was a rock star, you know, in weird giant houses where everything was broken and there wasn't any food, but it was very fancy and everyone was high and Mick Jagger was sitting in the living room. Right. Uh, that's not a normal experience. That's not, you know, that's like a very small percentage of the human race.
1: Minuscule. (laughs) It's smaller than small. Yes.
2: Right. But other people grew up in a situation that was mirror image, except nobody was famous and the house was not giant, you know, but they were being neglected and they were being uh, uh, exposed to inappropriate things at a very young age. And uh, the trauma that all of that causes plays out in the same way. It's just the framework around the story is different.
1: Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's such exciting—it's such exciting window dressing. You know what I mean? It's it's (laughs) such it's it's such an exciting backdrop of like you eating pop brownies with Donovan. Or the greatest story of your childhood, for my money, is stealing the last Purple Haze dose from from your dad from Owsley. Like (laughs) that's like the greatest dopey story in itself because it's so funny. Because you.
2: Never saw him so angry in my whole life. There was like, they, they had this, the house was incredible. I mean, they don't, it was a crazy house. If anyone wants to Google it, it was 414 St. Pierre Road in Bel Air, California. It's like this amazing house with a 370 Foot long with the, a pool the length of a, a football field,
1: right. uh, but
2: it, it was like uh, thin and and uh, curving, and the house was just incredible. But my you know my dad had this like little drug cabinet upstairs in his he and his Genevieve's bedroom, and there was always this little tiny glass vial with one little purple pill in it. And I would steal other drugs, and I would think, God, I wonder what that is. It seems kind of special. And then I heard him talking offhandly, yeah, man, that's my—that's probably the last hit of purple Owsley on the planet. And one night I went in there and I just, I fucking took it. And he lost his mind. I don't remember the trip. Yeah. I don't remember that. But I do remember knowing what I was doing and getting in lots of trouble for it.
1: Here's a dumb question, because obviously your dad had a ton of... LSD on the nightstand. He loved acid, right?
2: Yeah, but I mean, this was more in his... He was less tripping and more, you know... Coking uh, and farm- looting. Pharmaceuticals and Cokes and loods and that kind of stuff, yeah.
1: But, like, was the Owsley hit, do you remember it as being any better than any of the other doses you I, had eaten? I
2: wish I, I, you know, I wish I could recall. I really, you know, that's, a, that's the saddest part of this story, is that I don't remember...
1: No, but that's also just the legend of Owsley. You know, like you can get some dose somewhere else that was just as good, but it's because it's Owsley. purple. Per- yes,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. fun,
1: you know. Um, when did you? What was the first drug you remember falling in love with?
2: Uh wow. I think the first drug I fell in love with was cocaine, but the first the first drug I did was alcohol, and then. Um, you know, there was weed. I mean, I loved acid too. Look, I was your garden variety trash can Mm. for many years. You know, have you got it? I will take it, whatever it was. And, you know, and that's, you know, I mean, not to get all clinical on it, but that's a function, as we all know, of escapism or a response to generational trauma or, you know, neglect or all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I have to bring that in because, I do work in the field of behavioral health now, and it is—you it is, know—I totally can laugh and tell these stories, but I also have to bring in that piece of—and here's a possible reason why it was so attractive.
1: Well, that's why—that's why you're surpassing my expectations because you're taking <laughs> us on the trip, and then you're holding up the signs for why and what does it mean, and I—and I think our audience, who are a bunch of drug addicts, some in recovery and some not in recovery will benefit. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to talk to, uh you know, Gabor Mate. Oh God. I, I, I kneel at the altar of Mate. Right. He's, he's genius. and And he doesn't, he doesn't like believe in the disease concept and he doesn't believe in the genetic piece. He sees the addiction as this coping mechanism, which I really like hearing that personally. Well, he,
2: here's what he says. Don't ask why the drugs ask why the pain, the pain right. that caused the reason to do the drugs. Right. And then there's this, this thing of like nurture versus nature. You know, I grew up, I come from a long line of alcoholics and addicts. I mean, as far back as I can see, in my family tree you know we were all doing something to get away from something you know and so i do see the generational aspect of it but i also kind of believe in the genetic predisposition i mean is it monkey see monkey do or is it something in me that wants to escape reality as a component of genetics i don't really know well i think but that's I'm, very i'm interesting. i'm sort of Me too, I'm very fascinated by those two warring bits, you know?
1: Totally. The question is, like, is it the the addiction that's genetic or is it the pain that's genetic? Like, I know one thing that I inherited from my father. He was definitely not a drug addict nor an alcoholic, but he's an intense worrier. He just didn't medicate his anxiety with drugs like I did, you know? Did he use food? What did he use? Work? No, yeah, work and just... You know, complaining, <laughs> neuroses. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's he's kind of the 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 the, the, the typical uh, nebbishy New York City public high school teacher. Um, love
2: but it, love it. He
1: used complaining and guilt to deal with neuroses, and, and probably work, and probably food, and probably sports on TV. Like he didn't expect it to come out in me um, when when your family saw, like your father felt pride when he saw you using right.
2: Yeah, it was the weirdest thing. Yeah, it was, the, it was the, well, at first when I was like, you know, 12 or 13 and I was getting loaded and, and uh, you know, uh, hitchhiking on the strip and hanging out at Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco, you know, he was like, well, kid, you better be careful when you're out there, you know, make sure that you uh, uh, at least come home one night a week, you know, and I was like, oh, these are the rules? These are the rules? Okay, I can do whatever the hell I want. But then, you know, as time went on, I became sort of a partner in
1: crime. Right. You know? Well, you described it. You described it like he loved hanging out with cool people. And how cool is it when your kid is the cool person? Right.
2: Like at the front of High on Arrival, uh, and that's the reason the book is called High on Arrival, there's uh, lyrics to a song that he wrote about me called Just 14. And um, he wrote it when I was 14, and if you listen to his record, it's called "Pay Pack and Follow." Right um, which was produced by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. You can listen to the song "Just 14," and my dad and, and Jagger sing it basically together. you know, and Jagger's going, "She's just 14 14." <laughs> you know And um, Amazing She's man. always. She's always so high on arrival, and she runs on her high-platform heels, and she falls flat on her face, and she knows how life feels, and she's just 14. That that high on arrival, that's where the title of the book came from. Because I was sitting there going, what am I going to call this fucking thing? And then I thought of that song, and I was like, oh, my God, high on arrival. Um, but when you think, if you if you look at the front of the book and you read that, you know, that encapsulates how wildly inappropriate and unconventional it was, you know, that, that, uh, that this song could be written about your 14 year old child. You know what I mean? It's like, wait, what? This is like, yeah.
1: Well, totally. The thing. And, and like, and just when I hear you say the word 14, I get shivers. You know what I mean? I get chills up and down my spine because of like my daughters, I have a daughter who's 11 right now and a daughter who's three. And, um, and I, it's shocking, right? It's shocking. Well, it's also like because I've been talking about you uh, in my private life for the past few weeks as I've been really interested in this, and and being fourteen in, in how, what what year was it? Nineteen seventy one, seventy two, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. terrible at math. And me I too. was
2: born in I was born in, in uh, fifty nine, so oh. I'm sixty two now. So wow. just to give give the listeners out there some some uh, perspective.
1: Well, um, it's critical why perspective. Why I might be able...
2: It's critical, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
2: here's the deal. I have a son, right? Shane. He's 34. But when I think of Shane at 14, and, and, you know, when I was the mother of a 14-year-old boy, his experiences were, you know... I mean, except for when I relapsed, that sucked. That really sucked. That was really hard for him. He was like, are you okay, Mom? You know, because he'd had a sober mom since the time he was five. Mm. You know... But when you think about your fourteen-year-old beautiful baby, uh, and then I, you know I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, "Wow, when I was fourteen, what was I doing?" Oh, oh, wow, that is fucked up. I, but it's also it's also my experience. It's also my life. So I get to go. I get to say, "Wow, that is fucked up." But I also get to go, "Wow, that was
1: fun, right?" And well, scary it's scary and a, weird. Exactly. It's an experience that nobody else has but I want to talk about that era to be a young teen in the early seventies is so much different than to be a young teen now. It was loaded in groupy It was like clubs you could get into. It was like part of the of the rock star's repertoire to be entertaining super young women. Wasn't it was right. it was a different scene, wasn't it?
2: It was a very different scene, but I was I was hanging out with Lori Lightning and Sable Star. Right. Those were my friends. You know, those are like, and you know, when you think of famous groupies, you think of Sable. You think of Miss Pamela. You think of the GTOs. You think of, you know, all of those Mer- Miss Mercy, all those women. But I was kind of like a little past Miss Mercy and Miss Pamela, so I was hanging out with Sable and Queenie and Lori and Rodney Bingenheimer and all that kind of stuff but the rules were different around me because I was the kid. Right. And no one was allowed to I, that's in the book too. No one's allowed to touch the kid. Do not fuck with the kid because they knew my father would kill them.
1: So you're the same you know? age as, as these as these really famous groupies and you're in the same scene. I think I
2: was maybe maybe a little bit younger. Maybe like a year younger. But, um,
1: but right there. you know,
2: they, they were all in my house. Like we were all hanging out in my house and we would, you know, run around, you know, Hollywood and go to the rainbow and go to Rodney's and hitchhike on the strip. And yeah, it was, it was nuts. It was
1: nuts. And when do you think that like, at, you know, cause there's a difference between Using here and there An actual addiction Like do you suspect You were drinking Alcoholically then Were you using coke Alcoholically then Or addicted then Like what was the era In terms of your Actual proper addictness
2: You mean when did I turn in From a cucumber to a pickle
1: Well yeah The beginning of Like the half sour variety Yes the beginning
2: Well exactly Well you know It's very
1: hard To look
2: back And Mm. go Oh that's when it got Real but I think, you know, I was a baby addict. I was getting whatever I could. I was stealing drugs from my dad. I mean, I remember I remember my dad and Genevieve, his wife, Bijou's mom, Bijou and Tamerley's mom, they had a, ha- a house in Malibu Colony when I was a kid, and I would come out there on the weekends. And while I was there, I would, you know, throughout the weekend, start squirreling away this, that, or the other, you know, a little cocaine, a little tie sticks, a little whatever I could find, and then I'd come back the next weekend, and my stepmother would say, oh, here comes the little criminal. (laughs) uh Uh-oh, busted. But I don't really remember. I think, you know, around when I started, uh, one day at a time.
1: Right, um, because your access to your own money was so intense.
2: Yeah, So, but I was living with my Aunt Rosie, who was like, you know, a military boss, but I was sneaking out, and you know, I mean, it, it, it's so crazy to talk about all this. Especially, I'm sitting here in my office as the director of referral relations of a treatment center in West Hollywood, California, that I'm part owner of, called Breed Life Healing Center. So I'm I'm sitting in my office talking about this crazy kid, and then I'm going to audit some charts and walk out and talk to some clients, and, you know, <laughs> I have a, a conference call at one, you know, it, it's it's very difficult to reconcile the two.
1: Well, let's talk numbers. about that, because I love that. I mean, like, I'm I'm coming up, I, I have six and a half years sober. I started making this show, uh, you know, like, almost six years ago. We started it when I had four months. And, and I have two kids, and I, I work at a deli, you know what I mean, in Manhattan, and, and, and we go on these shows, and we talk about the worst shit that ever happened, and you're around these kids now, you know, your clients, they're not only kids, kids and adults, who are, you know, I doubt anybody comes in there that used the way you used, but how often are you disclosing? Like, how often is that built into your work?
2: Well, it's funny, you know, I used to carry a caseload here as a counselor, and you know, uh, doing you know, whatever. What everyone knows what counselors do at a treatment center. I don't do that anymore. But back when I was doing that, I'd be sitting with someone who just got assigned to my caseload, and you know, they just got out of detox, and they're like, "Hang on, this is weird. Aren't you the mom from So Weird, the Disney Channel show that I did?" Yes. And I'm like, well, isn't that funny? (laughs) Yes, that's me. And they're like, okay, I just was wondering. And, you know, I'm like, isn't, you know, and and that's something that, you know, that, you know, a lot of the clients know who I am or they're scuttlebutt around the treatment center. They're like, she's from Orange is the New Black. That one is famous. But, uh, you know, and we deal with it. But I have a really funny story. You want to hear a funny story? I totally do. Okay, so I was in treatment after I got arrested in 2008, uh, and I was in treatment in Louisiana, and I had this roommate who was hilarious. She was fucking hilarious. And she's like, you're Mackenzie Phillips. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Isn't that weird? I am. (laughs) But I'm here because I just got arrested for felony possession. So then she calls her mom, and she goes, Mom, you're never going to believe this. (laughs) My roommate at treatment is Mackenzie Phillips, and her mom goes, "Oh, honey, now you know she's dead." Oh no! <laughs> and this girl came to me, and she goes, "You have to talk to my mom because she thinks you're dead, and I'm insane."
1: Wow! I mean, like, the myth of Mackenzie Phillips, right?
2: That is funny to me. I find that I, I laughed so hard because because it's weird to be
1: famous. Well you're famous and you're infamous and Exactly. As I'm googling Mackenzie Phillips and I'm searching for every podcast you've been on, I'm listening to a bunch you've been on. I'm listening to your podcast with uh with Brad. I'm listening mm-hmm. to uh, a couple of Dr. Drew podcasts and then I start finding podcasts about you that you're not even on. And I'm like, really? Yeah, I'm like, wow. I'm like, that must be like. Imagine if you tune into a podcast where it's just a woman <laughs> talking about your life. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's-
2: that that is a little weird. That that is that, that everything is very interesting. And you know, I tr- I really want to be one of many. You know, and you know, I'm not as famous as I used to be, and and that's totally fine with me. You know, but uh, it's interesting to be walking down the street and people are like, and I don't notice it, but someone I'm with will go, did you see what they just did? I'm like, no, I, I, what are you talking about? But I try to, you know, because I, I work this job and I love this job and I get to, you know, like when I did orange is the new black, I was the director of referral relations at breathe life healing center, but I was in Queens auditing charts from my dressing room at Kaufman Astoria studios in my prison uniform.
1: <laughs> the irony, <laughs> you know, the irony is thick, right? The
2: irony of it all. It's all so crazy.
1: Well, when, when you, when your star like got to, you know, one of its, its apexes, which was one day at a time, like the yeah. show is so big. Um, it's so fun. And it really, like, it's it's an imprint on people that grew up in the early 70s. It imprinted on me. I know it imprinted on my sister. Anybody that grew up in that time. And to see that family unit, um, the the family on the show, and, and to know your own experience and how kind of it mirrored itself in the show, even though it was so different... Um, it was like almost you were a pasteurized, you played a pasteurized version of yourself, but the feeling exactly. seemed very similar.
2: Absolutely. Like Julie Cooper on One Day at a Time was the rebel and the wild girl, and I was mirroring that in my life, but I was playing like the suburban non-Hollywood version of
1: that. And as your fame rose, how much did your did your father, like was he like, going nuts and like oh my god I know I know that when you did American graffiti he was like my daughter's a star like he was very
2: happy to have a famous child because and you know look my dad was such a complicated human being and you know and I've forgiven him and I certainly don't uh, co-sign anything uh, it was a very I'm lucky to be alive I'm lucky to have survived being his daughter absolutely but my father was very happy to have a very famous daughter because, it, because of the way it reflected on him. You know, the, the, uh, the ability to gain entrance in places or that he might have sort of uh, become less relevant. Right. Well, his
1: brilliance gets to be transferred to you. And his star was totally fading, like because of his drug use.
2: Thank you for saying it. I didn't say it.
1: Well, no, you I didn't. mean this guy <laughs> I mean he was, you know, uh just pop royalty. Like another thing that always interested me and, and it kind of goes through your story here when because like I read about the stone like when I used to use I would read stories about drugs. and that's why I read your dad's book and I would read every book about the stones and stuff and in and, and like scar it- tissue. Oh, scar tissue. Yeah, of oh, course.
2: Scar tissue.
1: God. I, I actually interviewed uh Ratzo, the guy who wrote it with Anthony. He was like Howard mm-hmm. Stern's writer too. And like that dude. Yeah, is, yeah. He's amazing. Scar Tissue's a crazy book. Your book's a crazy book, but there's a book about the Rolling Stones called like My Adventures with the Rolling Stones, which was written by a guy named Nick Kent in the early 70s, and he talks about Freddie Sessler incessantly in that book. Oh, My
2: ex father in law. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I could not believe it that that. Like, you
2: can't even make this shit up that I married Freddie Sessler's son and I was in a long term relationship with Peter Asher. And we were in New York and Anita Pallenberg was staying in the same hotel. And I, Peter, and I went up to Anita's suite. And Jeff Sessler was there, and I met Jeff Sessler, and Peter was like, you know, we really need to go to bed, dog. It's getting quite late, and we have an early flight. And Peter went back to our room, and I didn't see him again for like three months because I was with Jeff Sessler, and I ended up marrying Jeff Sessler. Oh, it's so crazy. I haven't thought about a lot of this stuff in a long time, Dave.
1: Well, then forgive me. Forgive
2: forgive (laughs) me. No, it's okay. No, it's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a you know, people say, oh my God, doesn't it trigger you talking about that? I'm like, no, I live and walk free.
1: Absolutely. I you, you survived. Free. You survived yeah. and now you're thriving. And as a fan, I mean, a day
2: at a time, like everybody else, one day at a time, I'm thriving
1: one minute at a time. Right. It's like, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, from, from my perspective, for some reason, you know, obviously there are all these, you know, alcoholic binges, coke binges, quaalude binges, which I love to read about. But I felt like your shit went to hell when you married Jeff Sessler. Like that's when.
2: Oh, my. It got so fucking dark. Just
1: desc- describe, really it, describe it for the doping well, nation because it's also that know, decadent I- 70s, right?
2: Well, you know, I married Jeff, I think it was 1979 or maybe 1980, I don't even know. And it was just like, I mean, I can't really describe it, but sort of the weird highlights would be like Freddie had this, and I'm making air quotes, weight loss clinic Hmm. in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale where you could just go and get prescribed a shit ton of speed, right? But it was a weight loss clinic. And then we'd go, we'd go to Freddie, we'd fly to Florida and we'd get a bunch of speed and then we'd go to Freddie's house. And Dopey Nation, literally Freddie had giant bottles of pharmaceutical Merck cocaine.
1: The pink stuff?
2: And he would sprinkle it on dinner.
1: Oh my God.
2: Like it was like, you know, like, like fancy European salt, Himalayan salt. Right. Was it the
1: pink Coke?
2: There was pink and there was opalescent. It was sort of opalescent. Oh, my God. Like, it, like it would catch all the colors of the rainbow. But it was literally these big brown bottles filled with pharmaceutical, not pharmaceutical grade, but literally the stuff you could only get from the company that made it. Merck. It was called Merck. Merck Pharmaceuticals. And that was just crazy. I mean, you know, that was just crazy. And we would hang out with the Stones. And, but it was also, like, very, very dark. Jeffrey, uh, you know, threw me down the stairs. I punched him in the eye. You know, it was awful. I mean, it was awful. There was a lot of weird sex stuff going on. And, but, you know, I, I made peace with Jeff Sessler before he died, um, you know, we're both Scorpios. His birthday's November 6th. Mine was November. He died at NAM. by the way. He died at the NAM convention, which is kind of fitting, um, you know, that where all the musicians and people go every year, but you know, it was dark. It was a lot of drugs, a lot
1: of, um, God, it was crazy. It definitely seemed ridiculously crazy. And, and while we're going down that road, when was the first time, like, you shot up? Do you even remember it?
2: Like, the first time I shot up, my dad did it. You know, there were needles everywhere in the house, and I was at my dad's house in, you know, where was it? Somewhere in Connecticut. Old Greenwich, I think. And I knew where they were hidden, but I, I, didn't, I knew there was cocaine in them, and I wanted it. I didn't know how to use them. And so my dad said, okay, I'll do it for you. And I remember he had his hair in a ponytail and he had these little half glasses on, you know, those little half reading glasses.
1: Yeah. 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 Like Benjamin Franklin. And
2: I, yeah. And I think one of the ear holders was broken and, you know, I had my arm out in front of me and, you know, and it was like, it was like, you know, comedy of errors. And it's also tragedy of errors, of course. And he was like, okay, here we go. And then he fucking missed.
1: Did he hit, did he muscle you? Did he, did he shoot it into your, into your arm or what did he do? No, he shot it into my
2: arm, but it, it, my whole arm went numb. Yes. Yes. It was a very, <laughs> you know, and then I, you know, I figured out how to do it cause he was talking me through it. And then it was, it, it was game on because my dad was a very tall man. He was over six foot six and I knew that he kept his loaded rigs on the, the, you know, the little shelf above the, the doorway. There's like a little
1: ledge. The, yeah. Yeah.
2: The little ledge, yeah, so there would be them, you know, there would be loaded rigs over all the doorways in the house, and I would go around and find them and do them up myself.
1: Why did he preload and,
2: them? I, God, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, it was, it was actually a, uh, a habit that I carried into my life. Like, if I was traveling, I would preload. Wow. Yeah.
1: Chris, my friend who died, would, would drive around with, preloaded rigs and at red lights his friends would hit him like in, like he would shoot like coke in one arm and heroin in the other that was the only time I ever heard of preloaded rigs but you carried around I would never do it because I'd be scared that it would squirt out in my bag and I'd lose it you know
2: well not if you had everything you know perfectly arranged to the point where it wouldn't
1: okay I I, I trust you 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 seem like much more meticulous than I ever was I, was imagine- I think I'm
2: a little, I mean, I went, I went in and out of my meticulous phases, you know, but yes, totally. And so that was the first time I shot up and just, but it didn't work and it was very disappointing.
1: And I remember reading that he, he, yeah, he had to talk you through it, but like, I was a, a terrible needle user, and, and, and I had this ridiculous relationship with needles where I didn't want to use them, and then I wound up using them, and I had them everywhere. Um, how would you describe your relationship with needles through the years?
2: Well, I mean, through the years threw me off. Um, through the years. I mean, I, when I was a little kid, I was afraid of shots, and the doctor would have to chase me around the room and my mom would help catch me and then I'd get my booster or whatever it was. But then, you know, as I got older and, um, you know, especially after that day in Connecticut, I learned how to do it myself and I wasn't afraid of needles. And I, um, you know, and, and many years later, fast forward, I'm, you know, a grown woman Uh, with a severe substance use disorder, living, frankly, Dave, in the same house I live in now. I've had my house for 20 years and Mm. 21 years. And, you know, I would order needles from pharmaceutical supply companies by like 500 at a time. Wow. And, they, you know, I don't know if they still do it. Now, people out there, don't order 500 (laughs) needles. It's a bad fucking idea.
1: You could just go to the drugstore
2: now. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I needed to have my own stash. And so I would be like, I would order them. And then one day they called me and they said, um, Ms. Phillips, why, why do you need so many syringes? And I said, and I had to think fast and I said, well, you know, I run a private needle exchange out of my home <laughs> Amazing.
1: for the local Amazing.
2: addicts, you know, so they don't use, you know, tainted needles yeah, I was out of control. It was it was intense.
1: Your story is just fucking ridiculous. I can't even take it.
2: You know, I've often thought of writing a second book, uh, 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 a follow up to High on Arrival, and calling it Everything I Left Out.
1: Well, I don't because think that's a bad there's idea. So there's so much, much. more. I yeah. can't even. I can't even imagine. One personal question that I have, just because I. I I, I'm trying to make sense out of it. Is the connection between your dad and the Stones was that just because they were pop royalty and drug addicts? Was that or, or what? What was what was that brought them together so so deeply?
2: I don't know. My dad moved to London, and um, he was doing an album, which ended up being Pay Pack and Follow, which was produced by the Glimmer Twins, which mm,
1: was what and Keith. Keith.
2: Um. And, you know, Mick had his place on Shaney Walk, and my dad was, had a place near, on Glebe Place. And I went and spent the, uh, the summer, it was this 1976, there was this huge heat wave in London. And I was there, I think I was 16. And, you know, in the United States, I was very famous. But in England, I wasn't. I was just a cute girl. Like, if I was walking down the street and some guy whistled at me or, or a boy, a guy, a man, whatever, uh-huh. wanted to talk to me. I knew it wasn't because I was Julian one day at a time. It was because I was a cute girl. And I started running around London. And this was the craziest time because Keith and my dad were maniacs shooting heroin and shooting coke. And Keith and my dad would crawl around the apartment looking for bits of coke in the carpet. And, you know, it was a wild time. I mean, I remember that my grandmother, my father's mother, and I flew to England one summer. I think it was a different summer. I'm not really sure. And we went out to Keith and Anita's home in the country. And I think I was 16, maybe, maybe right around there. And we'd be sitting there, you know, in the morning and Keith would come stumbling into the room and sort of nod out a little bit and my grandmother would lean over and she'd go he's on drugs isn't he yes
1: (laughs) you think so you think so grandma
2: and then we got home and you know that very famous picture of keith standing in front of the no loitering sign sure my i think it was in life magazine i'm not sure my grandmother looks at and she goes that's that nice young man we visited in england isn't it Amazing. I'm like, yes, Amazing. That, is that, that is that nice young man we visited in England,
1: Amazing. Grandma. And, when, and, and your story obviously has so many highs and lows, ups, downs, and sideways, um, and relapses. When was the first time that you were like, fuck, I need to get help?
2: Um, you know, I always thought I was just living out my destiny. I'm a Phillips. You know, I was always told, you're a Phillips. You can do whatever you want. The rules don't apply to you. You know, I was taught some very bad information. Um, My father said, a lie is always better than the truth. So you can lie and you're a Phillips. It doesn't matter. The rules don't apply to you. And I was sort of operating from a a faulty database, Right. right? So I believed that I could do whatever I wanted and that the rules didn't apply to me. And so I really felt that I was supposed to run it out in the dark alone until I died. And anyone who tried to stop me was getting in the way of a master plan. Um, And then I started going to treatment when I was probably 18 and I would go to treatment and I would think, these people actually want me to not use drugs after I leave? (laughs) What is wrong with them? Do they not understand that I'm only here to create some space between my behavior and the people who can affect my freedom, right? So I would go to treatment in order to lull people into a sense of complacency that I wasn't going to do it again with every intention to do it again. And I didn't start thinking, oh, my God, I have to change until Shane was born.
1: Right. So that's brutal honesty, though. What you just said is, like, brutal honesty. And how many people just doing the work that you do, you see that on them, but they can't get that out of their mouth. They can't, you know. Oh, but I tell them. (laughs) I'm
2: like, you're only here to create space between the people, you and the people that have power over you. And I hope... Well, I don't, I, I mean, you know, I, I can say that I hope that you live long enough to get the gift of recovery.
1: Absolutely. And and so you, you found th- that you actually wanted to get well when you got pregnant, when you had the baby. Yeah. Well, no. When you saw the baby.
2: When I was pregnant with Shane, I was shooting coke all the way through the eighth month of my pregnancy. And... I cannot excuse it. I cannot explain it. Um, um, Shane is brilliant. Uh, Thank God. He's brilliant. He's he's not an addict, dude. He's not an addict. Shane is like the guy that will buy a 12-pack of, you know, some nice IPA, and then, or maybe he'll get some white, he lives with me, and maybe he'll get some White Claw and, like, you know like a 12 pack 5 days later there's still 9 left
1: right right i'm
2: like who the fuck is he?
1: how did this Are happen you? to him <laughs>
2: how, how did this happen like he's a guy who you know he'll smoke a little weed he's a normal guy who happens to be brilliant and incredibly talented as a musician um but like i did that i shot coke all the way through my pregnancy. And they were preparing me for, and frankly, here, here's the deal. Frankly, if this were happening now, I would never have gotten to raise Shane because they would have taken him away from me. Right. But they didn't. And I got to have this beautiful 30, almost 35 years with my incredible gift named Shane Barakan. And, um, you know, so so Shane was born... And he was normal. He was, you know, I mean, frankly, a kid who was gestated in a mother. And I, I, you know, I can't excuse it. I feel horrible about it. It might not sound like it, but I've normalized to it over the 35 years. And Shane and I have talked about it. We still talk about it. But he was a little jumpy after he was born. You know, he. (laughs) Yes, that makes (laughs) sense, I think. I mean, you can imagine, right? You know, I would drop a pan in the kitchen and he would jump 10 feet, but um, he's, he's a a wonderful person and not an addict. And I uh, am, am living uh, in a state of grace because of that. Um, well,
1: I mean, when, when when my daughter was born, I, I was using, you know, and I, I used for years after she was born and it it, it didn't pass, like, because I was the man, you know, she could, my, my partner could leave with our daughter, you know what I mean? And I would go on in my hell and it's, it's a double standard in a lot of ways.
2: Right. Yes. Yes. I mean, Shane's dad, I mean, I would have left me. Right. I would have abandoned me and he didn't. And to this day, you know, he's, he's in his own right, a very talented and well-known British rock and roll guitar player. His name is Shane Fontaine. You guys can Google him if you want to. He's brilliant and amazing and wonderful. And he's still my best friend. I mean, he's been married to someone else for 23 years and we spend Christmas and Thanksgiving and all the holidays together. We're a very modern family in that way. But, you know, after Shane was born, I, I mean, I kept at it. I kept at it and it was got really, really ugly and really dirty and not good. And I ended up going to, I ended up saying I have to go to treatment and I have to go tonight. (laughs) It's like, you know, in the true, true, I want it and I want it now. And Mm -hmm. so by sundown I was in treatment, but I took like a pocket full of Xanax and they didn't know. And I was in, you know, detox for like a couple of months. And then I went to a place called Alina Lodge in Blairstown, New Jersey, where I stayed for nine
1: months. Did you ever hear the expression, dodge the lodge? Oh my God. (laughs) No, but I believe it. No, that was like Chris, my partner who died, uh, was, oh, he went to Alina Lodge and they were like, you have to, everyone at Alina Lodge was like, don't go to Alina Lodge. You must dodge the lodge. Um,
2: that is fantastic. I was there with Mrs. Delaney, before she died. So basically I was captive there for nine months and I came out of there and I resumed, you know, I mean, I was terrified. I was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm sober for the first time ever, you know, leaving treatment nine months sober. Right. And Shane was four and turned five while I was in treatment. And I came home and stayed sober for 10 years and then had a rather spectacular relapse that ended in me, you know, going back to
1: getting, bu- getting I, busted at a one day at a time on the way to a one day at a time reunion. My, my favorite Rachel Ray show. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. My, my favorite, <laughs> one of my, another one of my favorite parts of your life. Forgive me for having favorite parts in your life, but when you <laughs> okay. when you go to Alina Lodge and you see all the fucking AA-isms and you see think, 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 and you see this, and then you see one day at a time and you thought they had hung it up because they knew you were coming. That's the best.
2: I thought, oh my God, how lovely of them. They knew I was coming. That is the That's best. That's how much attention I paid in rehab the previous nine times, you know?
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, how, and how much did, did that even speak to you that your career was built on this show that was named after this phrase? Like, like, did, I know. It, did it resonate with you at some point?
2: Well, I mean, yes, of course, eventually, but you know, when people come up to me and they're like, Oh my God, have you ever thought of the irony? And when they get that far, I already
1: know what they're going to say. It's like, leave me alone. Fuck you, I'm I'm Mackenzie Phillips. Go fuck yourself. I hear you. I would never say
2: that, but I always, I'm like, yes, actually that has occurred to me. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. So forgive
1: me, (laughs) forgive me for, for going down that path. Um, and, 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 like one of the, obviously like the, 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 the story that everyone talks about, and it's the super painful story that gets compartmentalized is, is the rape and the incest with your dad. Um, at, yes. at what point, like, did you decide to write about it before, like, at what point did you start dealing okay. with it?
2: I started dealing with it long before I started writing about it. Um, I had been offered to write my life story ever since I was like 22, and I'm thinking at 22, I'm thinking I don't think it's time, you know. I don't really have a, a mini, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I, I certainly wasn't ready to be transparent. And then um, I was, I had was working with a Rolling Stone writer. I won't name the writer but he was an amazing prolific contributor to rolling stone and we were working on a proposal for a book long before high on arrival getting arrested blah 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 and i was having these you know phone conversations with him because he was in new york and we were discussing you know going over the timeline and then this happened and that like like you and i are And I realized, I can't do this. And I had so much money on the table to write the book, you know, without the the publishers even knowing about the incest and all of that. And I said to this man, I said, you know what, I am sorry if I've wasted your time. I realize I'm not ready to do this. I cannot talk about this. And so I ended it, and then... You know, and it's, it's that, that, um, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, when high on arrival came out, people said, Oh, Oh, I see. You waited until he was dead so that he couldn't defend himself. But if I'd written it while he was alive, they would have said, why didn't you wait until he was dead? Totally How you do this.
1: Absolutely. You know, so
2: I, I was in this rock in a hard place position and Frankly, Dave, I was very naive. I did not expect the public backlash. I did not expect my entire family to turn on me and abandon me. I did not expect any of that. I'm fairly, you know, I'm a very kind, cheerful, fun, loving, understanding, compassionate, empathetic person. I did not expect people to go, fuck you, how dare you, you know. And so when all of that happened, I was, I I know it sounds naive, but I was completely blindsided.
1: It's brutal because you're, you're bearing your soul and these people are are like defending some lie, right? It's it's brutal to think about how painful that must have been.
2: It was very hard. And, you know, Shane and Shane's dad and I, and our little, little, you know, nuclear family, Stayed together, and the rest of the family went on for about eight years without even talking to me really. and since then, things have changed a great deal. My brothers and sisters and I are all very close. Um, you know we're a weird we're a weird ass family. I mean, you know I hear you. Uh, we are just a weird ass family, and I mean, you can find my sister, China. On her YouTube channel, California Preaching, which is wild and beautiful and wonderful in its own way, um, you know. So it it was a it was a um, wow. I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty, would I have told my story? Yes. Might I have gone about it in a different way? Possibly. How
1: how would, how would you have done it differently? I think you helped more people than you heard. I don't know. Hurt. I think you did. I I think you did the right thing. I mean, from, from a, I think, an outside perspective, I'm sure you're dying for my endorsement of what you did. But no, I, I appreciate
2: that. I do. I really do appreciate that. I don't know how I could have done it differently, but I do understand that it caused pain for a lot of my family members. But there's, well, let me think about it. There's probably 11, 12, 15 of us that, that, you know, but then when the book came out and at the same time that I was facing the judgment, backlash, distance, uh, from my family, I was uh, gaining an army of survivors of sexual abuse, who uh, you know loved me and said, "You, uh, you know, you, you changed my life. You gave me a voice when I thought I didn't have one, et cetera, et cetera." So it was, you know, uh, there's two sides to every coin, and uh, you know, uh, as as I as we said before, we survived. You survived your story. I survived my story. My family has survived their story, my story, and our dad's story.
1: Yeah, and your dad, like you describe in the book, was sick and a hedonist. And and I don't know. There's something about the end of his life and the way you described it in the book that I found to be incredibly beautiful. You know, I
2: thought, and it was. It was. It actually was quite beautiful, Dave. Um, I don't think I can ever explain it without referencing what i wrote in high on arrival
1: right no you but know? i mean like very i mean beyond powerful and um and then you fucking you got plastic surgery and found terrible pain and and you wound up going down the opioid hole
2: oh my god
1: that switch was flipped
2: pretty quickly but you know i i thought that like, you know, they always say you're going to go from A to Z. If you relapse, you're going to go from A to Z. You're going to pick up right where you left off, and, you know, you'll be back in a week. It took me, like, six years to get back. Like, I went from taking pain meds after a plastic surgery to scoring pain meds to taking pain meds, taking pain meds, taking pain meds. Then I get cut off, and then it's like, oh, heroin, right? So then I'm buying black tar, and then I'm like, maybe I should shoot some, you know, it's a pretty far jump, but it's happening all the time. You know, in this opioid crisis that we're in, people who are taking prescribed pain meds, and then they get cut off, and then the next thing is scoring it on the street, then you're scoring oxys on the street, and then the next thing is, wow, it's 80 bucks a milligram. So then it's
1: heroin. I better get some dope because it seems cheaper, but that's before people have a habit and it's not cheaper after you get a habit.
2: That's right. And then, you know, I mean, and this isn't just happening to people with long histories of addiction. You know, this is happening to people with sports injuries who, you know, get put on Oxy and young people, like young guys who get injured in a football game at high school and then they're on the Oxy train and then the Oxys get too much and then they're scoring dope. I mean, they, you know, people really need to understand that this is happening and with fentanyl out there, people are dropping like flies and it's absolutely devastating.
1: Yeah, and it's, and it's, well, it's so much more death. I mean, that's what killed Chris and that's what killed my friend Todd and that's what killed a bunch of other people who were listeners to the show and in the Dopey Nation community. And as somebody who works in the field, like, like I mean, 100,000 people died this year of, of, of overdose. Like, what? I mean, I mean, it's a stupid question because when I tend not to talk about what can we do, because I just try to make this show, try to keep people company, try to be somebody that, you know, obviously I have my own addiction history and, and I was on heroin and methadone for like 15 years and and I'm sober, but I don't know what to do. Like, what do you do? Like, you, you're professional. <laughs> what do we do, Mackenzie?
2: Well, I mean, what I do is I talk about Wake up, people. It's not that far of a jump from your beautiful high school football star, gorgeous baby boy getting injured, ending up on pain meds, and then ending up on dope, and then dying of a he- fentanyl overdose. Like, the, Stop thinking that it will never happen in your family, because it can, and it might, and I hope it doesn't. Um, I, I'm very open about my experiences, because chipping away at the stigma is going to help people feel like they can reach out for help. I work in treatment because I can't change the world, but I can help. I know, okay, I'm going to get corny here, but I know the address of hell, okay? Yeah,
1: that's not corny. That's real.
2: But I also can help to guide you out, right? Like... Like, what you do with what you learned while you're in treatment, what you do with that after you leave, God, I hope you use it. But if you don't, I'm going to see you back here again. Hopefully. Or, or, God forbid, you're going to be one of the fallen, you know? And I don't know why we survived, Dave. I don't know. But like you with Dopey Nation, you feel beholden to do something. Well, I feel beholden to do something. I,
1: I, feel, like, you know, I, I, I feel like, I feel like I, we endured something, you know, I endured something and I, and I want to like, make it clear that like, I could be as bad as I was and have this life in sobriety and recovery. That's good. Like that. I have exactly. fun. I like my life. Like It's possible. And it's like fun. If it wasn't fun,
2: I wouldn't fucking be doing it. Absolutely. If it, if, if it wasn't fun. I would be under a bridge somewhere, but it's fun. Life is beautiful, it's meaningful, and it is what you make it.
1: I just wish we could, like, reach out and turn on the fun switch because, like, what, when you when you said it took you six years to get back, what was the thing that made you go back after the six years?
2: Uh, you, you have the right to remain silent.
1: Right. And that was like, just like, wake up, M- Mackenzie. This is ridiculous. Let me
2: tell you. The night before I went to the airport to get on that fucking plane where I got arrested at the airport, I was cooking up a shot, right? And I was rocking back and forth. And people who are in the secret society community will understand. I was doing what I do, and I'm rocking back and forth, and I'm going... Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who get out of it. And I'm crying and I'm weeping and I'm quoting the secret book wow. out loud to myself, thinking I'm either going to die in here or someone's going to save me. And it happened to be the Los Angeles airport police <laughs> right. that fucking saved me.
1: Hey, hold up. You have to tell this whole story, if you don't mind. Would you please tell this whole story? It's too monumental for the Dopey Nation not to hear it.
2: I got it in my pocket. So there I am. I am living at my house where I still live. um, And I had my son, as they do, had moved out. And I had moved the drug dealers into my son's room. And so, and they were a lovely, (laughs) listen to me, listen to me, justifying. They were a lovely older couple that I'd known for many years and they had, you know, it was like a, I had like a constant stream of heroin and cocaine from, you know, the f- ground floor of my house to the primary suite upstairs, right? So I get this um, call, oh, Rachel Ray is turning 40 or however, I think it was 40, and her favorite show growing up was One Day at a Time. She's friends with Valerie Bertinelli, and they've recreated the set from One Day at a Time on the Rachel Ray set, and we're flying in the entire cast, well, me, Valerie Bertinelli, Pat Harrington, and Bonnie Franklin, to surprise Rachel Ray on her 40th birthday. Will you come? And I was like, oh, it sounds awesome. Of course I'll come. Meanwhile, I am so strung out. I have open abscesses on my arms. I'm missing some teeth. I weigh nothing, you know, I'm so skinny and just, so you know, what's the thought the there inside. when
1: you're totally fucked and you got to go on the Rachel Ray show to, you know, get in the glory days. Is that like total denial? Like I can do this. I, I don't even notice how bad I am. Like what, what's it the th- didn't
2: even, it didn't even occur to me to say no.
1: Right. How could you say it no? Just didn't, yeah, I hear you.
2: You know, it just didn't even occur to me to say no. And so, you know, the producer calls me for the pre-interview and I'm you know, chatting with him and the first class round trip airline ticket is delivered and the limo shows up at the house and I'm packing and I see this pair of pants that I hadn't worn in like maybe five years and they were extremely cool pants. They were like cargo pants with a dra- black cargo pants with a dragon embroidered down the leg. They were nice. really nice pants okay. and I was like, oh my God. And they, they had, like, cargo pockets and metal buckles. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to wear those pants. So I put on those pants. And then the man uh, of the couple, the, the drug dealers living in my house, he goes, now remember to take the foil off of the balls of tar heroin. He said, because if you get wanted or, you know, they will go off.
1: He's like the Jewish like, grandmother drug drug dealer. Remember exactly. to take
2: the foil off your ta. Yeah. Now right. honey, don't forget. When yeah. you get there, make sure you're not yeah. Exactly. Did I do that? No. No. Did I do that? No. No. And so You were too high, now, right?
1: You were too high to do that.
2: I was too I was too arrogant
1: to mm, do that. Okay.
2: And I at that time, God rest his soul, I had a diabetic pug named Max And I grabbed a shit ton of his insulin syringes, stuffed them in my purse, and got in the limo, wearing my fabulous cargo pants with the metal buckle. And I get to the airport, and of course, you know, it's like you go in the first class line for, and this was 2008, you get in the first class line for, um, you know, for security. So I'm waiting there, and I get in the first class, line. I walk through the thing, beep, beep, beep. And I think, oh, my God, oh, fuck, the buckle on the pants is metal. Of course it's going to set off the thing, right? So then they wand me, and as they're going, they put me in like that little corral. Can you please step aside? I'm like, oh, God, I'm so screwed. Oh, God, how am I going to get out of this one? And they wand me, and it goes off by the Buckle, you know, the little buckle on the pocket. Totally. And they, so I go to the side and I somehow, I've got three grams or however, three balls of black tar and an eighth of Coke powder in my pocket with the metal buckle.
1: I would be so bugged out in the airport with that. I don't, I, I would lose my mind. So, so well, then, I didn't
2: expect to get, if I'm going to tell you right now, if I hadn't had the pants with the buckle on it. The cool pants. Right. I would not have been arrested. And, and frankly, getting arrested saved my life. It's God's so,
1: will that you had the buckle with the dragon embroidery. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. So they put me in the little corral, and I somehow managed to get the you know, little Ziploc bag out of the pocket and into the uh, waistband of my pants. So then they wand me again. The pocket beeps, and then they wand past the waistband of my pants. And that beeps. And then I said, Oh well, you know, I have a metal belt on my underwear. And I'm like, what am I even <laughs> saying? These people think I'm insane. So then things start getting really intense. And you know, and I had my shoes off because I didn't have we didn't have TSA pre quite yet, I don't think. And I'm standing there and this giant lady cop with this fuzzy black hair, I swear This could be because I was high and I was scared, but she seemed like she was eight feet tall. Right. And she comes over and she goes, Miss Phillips, are you holding? And I said, no, I'm not holding. What are you talking about? And then she's talking to me and, and she says, are you holding? And I said, no, giant, scary lady. Right. I am not holding. And then she points down and she says, look at your foot. Well, apparently the baggie had slipped down these, you know, loose cargo pants and was poking out from under my foot on the floor.
1: Oh my God.
2: Like a total full on bag of dope. And I said, oh, oh shit. And she said, can you stand up? And I said, you're not going to arrest me, are you? And she said, no, 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 Miss Phillips, please just step over here. And I'm thinking, okay, she's calling me. She's cool. She's cool. Things are looking okay. And then she says, you have the right to remain silent. Unreal. And all I could think was, I'm Shane's mom. I'm Shane's mom. What the hell? It was bad. Dave, it was so bad. And then they drove me around in the back of a police car because they couldn't figure out what to do with me. And then I ended up at the Van Nuys jail near my house. And they didn't bail me out. And I spent the night in jail. And, oh, I was just so sick. I got really sick. And then they brought. Then finally, they bailed me out, and paparazzi were everywhere. And they brought me back to my house, which was like less than two miles from the Van Nuys jail. And I immediately went upstairs and started shooting everything I could find. And then, unbeknownst to me, my sister flies in this guy from a treatment center in Louisiana. And then he's in my room, and my son's in my room. My son walks in. He was 21, I think. He walks in, and I'm sitting there tied off, mm. right. And my kid is looking at me and they're trying to talk me to go, going to treatment. And I'm like, <laughs> meanwhile, I'm facing two felony counts, two felony possession counts. Right. And then when Shane walked in, I was like, oh, of course I'll go. Yes, I will go. So that was, that's my story.
1: It's incredible. What a, it's an incredible story. And, and given the fact that you run and own part of this rehab center, was it already in your mind at that point that like that was going to be the transformation? like when did it occur to you like i have I have the capacity to be of use to my community like when did that hit you?
2: Well, when I was a little girl, I would sit there and watch the people around me and I would think, "Oh my God, what makes people do the things that they do? I was always fascinated with what makes people behave the way that they do. And so as a young woman, I was always interested in psychology. I was always interested in, you know, the workings of the mind. I was interested in behavioral health. And then when I got home from rehab and I was there for six months and I got home to my house and like, Fuck, man, there's blood on the ceiling. There's dirty rigs everywhere in my room. Like people tried to come and clean up for me, but it's like, you know, would like your normal sister and your normal housekeeper come in the room and there's bloody rigs everywhere. No one's going to clean that mess up. I had to clean it up myself and I got home and I was like, oh my God, you know, and I'm six months clean at this time, right? I left the house loaded, came back to the house like in my right mind and I looked around and I went, oh my God, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I thought... Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be of service to other people. I'm going to go back to school and see if someone will hire me to work in treatment. And, and they did. And, I, you know, it's not like I, you know, thought, oh, I'm going to open a treatment center and call it Mackenzie's Place, right. you know, uh, because that never works. Like, you know, a celebrity endorsed treatment center. Come to my treatment center. I'm Mackenzie Phillips. That's not good. So I started, you know, I started from the bottom. I started as, you know, just a regular counselor. Yes, okay, a famous but regular counselor, right? And then over the years that I've worked at Breathe, I've been promoted through the ranks, and then they gave me a part of the company maybe three years ago. And, I mean, I've worked at Breathe seven years. So I've been doing this for a good – and I worked at another facility for a few years before that. So I've been doing this for a good long time, and I feel – I feel like, I can't say I feel like a different person because I'm still me. I'm still me. And, like, dude, (laughs) I'm going to call you dude. Dude, if I, like, there's, I always talk to clients at Breathe about that part of me that has criminal intentions still is there. It's just whether or not I listen to it. Like, one time I was at an open house, like, because I, like, sometimes used to, like, going to look at, you know, real estate for sale and get house envy, you know, on the weekend. Sure, yeah. I walked into this open house. It was this unbelievable house. And I look over, and I'm alone in this room, and there's like a $500 pair of Chanel sunglasses sitting on the table. And I thought to myself, wow, I could jack those. Yeah. No one would ever know. And And then I went, oh, hello, criminal part of me. Right. No, you don't get to do that anymore. I wasn't a thief to begin with. I mean, I would steal your drugs and then help you look for them.
1: Well, that's for sure. Of course,
2: but but that you know, I, I always have to remember that that part of me that's drawn to counterculture, dark side, weird shit—it's mm-hmm. going to rear its head now and then, and I have to be—I have to be mindful and go, "Oh, hello, you, hello." That part of me that I don't like to engage with. Guess what? You're not in control, and then I redirect myself towards something that's good and right and true. And yeah, so that part that part of us people in recovery, like always say, like let your freak flag fly.
1: Absolutely. But let
2: it let it fly sober. As long as you're not hurting anybody. You want purple hair, awesome. Have purple. You want tattoos all over your body? You want to pierce every orifice that you have, go for it. Be a sober man. Be a sober woman whilst being the freak that you are.
1: Yeah, just don't steal the Chanel sunglasses. Exactly. Put, put the shopping cart back where it, where it belongs. Fucking Always. do your I mean like that's I I like fucking hate bringing the shopping cart back, but that's my recovery tester. It's like I'm, I make
2: it fun. Like I push it real fast and then ride on it all the way back. Yeah,
1: I I I do that. And I also I take it and I shove it like an asshole and I'm like I'm doing the next right thing in like the worst possible way. And I like <laughs> fling it across the parking lot and it smashes into the- The thing, and I'm like, that wasn't exactly sober. It was almost that
2: wasn't that wasn't what I set out
1: to do. All right, I I I have one. Get that. I have one more. One more question. Uh, Okay. The Phillips chicken salad recipe. What about it? Was it was it chicken salad or was it tuna salad?
2: Oh, it's tuna salad.
1: The Phillips tuna salad recipe. That story might be my favorite oh, story oh, in the oh, book.
2: Oh, you, you mean with Mick Jagger?
1: Yes. Please okay. Please set the stage. Okay. It's too good not to okay. put in.
2: Oh, my God. Okay. So I'm in New York, and you know I'm with my dad and my stepmother, Genevieve, and we're at our friends, these people that I've known for many years. <laughs> they have this beautiful uh, apartment. Well, they have the whole floor of this fucking building that overlooks, Central Park West mm. and li- they've lived there for many years. Frankly, they still live there. And I, n- I know them still. Um, but I was there, I was staying with them and it was a wild time. And you know, um, G- Mick lived in the building. Mick Jagger also lived in the building with Jerry Hall. So Jerry was like, darling, I gotta go now. And she's like going somewhere. I'm sorry, Jerry Hall. Cause you know, I really like you. I'm sorry. I did this Jerry Hall. Um, and she's getting ready to go on a trip, a modeling trip, I don't know what. And she leaves. And then it's still, like, a bunch of people there. And I keep looking over at Mick Jagger because I haven't known him since I was a little kid, right? And I just always was obsessed with him and thought he was the most beautiful guy to walk the planet. And
1: well, I'm, I'm totally hetero, him. and I think he, he was totally beautiful. So keep going. Okay, good. okay, okay. okay.
2: So he says, my dad says, oh my God, I'm going to make the famous Phillips tuna salad. So the lady whose house it was, I'm not going to use her name, but she's like, oh John, let's go look in the kitchen. And they had cans of tuna, but she said, oh God, we don't have any mayo. And Mick said, I've got some mayo upstairs in my apartment. Why don't you come with me? And I was like, Okay, I would follow you into a flaming building. You know, and I was eighteen. You know, uh, and so I followed. We got, we went to his apartment, and um, he looks at me, and he, we walk in, and we're like, we've been eyeing each other for you know hours, and he looks at me, and he turns around, and he locks the door, and this is the part that pissed a lot of people off. Okay, and I. Can't help that people got pissed off about it, and Mix Mix Camp was a little, you know, they were like, why did she have to say that? But it's in the book, so I'm going to say it. And it's true. He turned around and he looked at me, and he said, I've been waiting for this since you were 10 years old.
1: Oy, oy, oy. Um,
2: but it's not, but he, I got to tell you, he's not a pedophile. Uh, it's like he waited until I was a grown woman. Um,
1: like, M- Mackenzie, I'm with you. I, I think it was okay. a, a time thing. I think it was yeah, the seventies were a yeah. wild time with a lot of frolicking. I, I would never throw any aspersions on the great Mick Jagger. I just love the so story I, that you had to go get mayonnaise.
2: We had to go get mayonnaise. And the, so, so then about 15 minutes later, my dad is pounding on the door like, Mick, open this door that's my daughter in there. And, and I don't remember what he said, but he said, John, John, everything's fine. So I ended up frolicking with Mick Jagger overnight in his apartment. We didn't go back downstairs. And then in the morning he gives me this, you know, and like, I look in the bathroom and it's Jerry Hall's bathroom with all her makeup and stuff. And I'm like, Holy shit. I just had sex with a married man, but it's Mick Jagger. And Oh my God, when he's my dad's best friend, you know, I'm thinking, oh, God. And then he wakes up and he says, would you like some tea, love? And he gives me this, you know, fluffy white robe. And he goes into the kitchen and he makes tea for two and toast and strawberries. And he brings it out on a tray. And, and the phone rings. And it's my dad. And and, and Mick hands me the phone. He says, John, here she is. And, and my, you know, I, and Dad goes, are you okay? And I said, I am fine. We're having tea and toast with strawberries and he's like was he nice to you and I said dad I'm a grown up okay leave me alone like any teenager would say you know I was on the
1: any teenager in the afterglow of love making to the great Mick Jagger
2: exactly I'm fine daddy
1: leave me alone I'm
2: fine God can you just leave me alone and you know we had our tea and then I went back downstairs and you know whatever I've seen him here and there over the years and He's a lovely man. He's, you know, he's just beautiful.
1: When's the last time you saw Keith?
2: Oh, my God. I have not seen Keith since probably the
1: 90s. All right. I want to see, I want to hear the the follow up reunion story because I heard Keith got sober. I'm so curious to hear about it. Like
2: sober, sober, or Keith Richards sober.
1: I, I don't know. I heard I heard first Keith Richards sober, and then sober, sober. That's what I heard. Wow. But, but, but what do I know? I don't I don't know. Well, I work-
2: know. Woody's been sober forever.
1: Ronnie, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he has my birthday. He's born on my birthday, June first. Uh, oh, been. Oh wow. I would love to have him on the show. He's a beautiful painter and a great guitar player. Um, I know. I was on tour with with
2: um, Woody with the Give Me Some Neck tour with Jeff Sessler, and I was, like, singing backups in the band, whatever, for whatever reason, and, um... Wait, you were singing
1: with the Stones on stage?
2: No, with Woody's...
1: Oh, with Woody's band. Okay. yeah, Amazing.
2: And Woody drew something of me, and I had it for years, but I, I don't have it anymore. It's a very sad thing that I lost that, but we hung out a lot.
1: He's an incredible artist. Last night I was watching TV, and they did this, uh... This weird, like, facts of life, different strokes, live on stage thing? Did you hear about yes, this? yeah I was,
2: I was invited to go to it, but I, I had other plans.
1: Well, yeah. it made me think of you, and it made me think of the phenomenon of child stars and drugs. What do you think it's about?
2: Well, here's the deal. I have worked with children... Um, Like on the Disney Channel series, so weird. I played a mom and I had kids on the show. And, you know, and Valerie came from this very supportive, sort of buttoned up Italian Catholic family. Um, You know, I think it has to do with boundaries and normal, uh, you know, more normal parents who try to create a world of normalcy for their child. But then I also wonder, you know, when we're talking about, I was thinking about you last night. I was thinking about Mate, and I was thinking about, you know, you know, the, don't ask why the drugs, ask why the pain. Mm. So there's so, it, there's so many, you're like, I can't point to one reason. I don't think it's Hollywood. Because if it was just Hollywood, people everywhere all over the world would not be dropping dead from fentanyl overdoses or, you know, Oxy or any of that stuff. I mean, I don't know, because... Valerie Bertinelli, normal. She's a normie. I mean, okay. So we used to do coke together, and we drank a lot of wine together. But she, she's a normal person. The kids that were on um, on so weird, totally didn't grow up to have wild substance use disorders. You right. know. So it's. I think it. It is a part of it has to be. You know, your physiological makeup part of it has to be, how do you express your success? If you're from a family that teaches you to express your success with charitable acts and good manners and good deeds, or if you're a family like mine, which is different, you know, at 16, how did I express my success? I had a two gram vial in my pocket and a convertible red Mercedes. You know, I don't know what makes that happen, but I do believe that all addiction springs from some sort of childhood trauma because I once had a client and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I had the most normal upbringing and everything was normal. Both of my parents were doctors and my nanny made me dinner every night. And I was like, your nanny made you dinner every night.
1: Exactly. Myself,
2: you know what I mean? So you may think everything's fairly normal, formal. And then when you start looking deeper, it's it's the the internal things that happen You know, do you feel unloved? Do you feel neglected? Do you feel the absence of something?
1: It's like the sliding scale of trauma, that, like, my trauma isn't your trauma. It's like I had, like, my neurotic Jewish parents who my mother, like, talked about me having love handles and, you know, like, or my dad, like, thinking I couldn't learn something or me feeling excluded or, you know, it's weird because, like... trauma. And people
2: think that, that in order to have... Trauma—you have to have, you know, been in a in a building that blew up, or you had to have been violently raped, or or, which, of course, are horrible and traumatic events. But complex trauma is small events over time that
1: take its toll.
2: The ability of the nervous system to self-regulate, and that's what we do is we bring in this regulation with substances. So, I mean, I think you and I could probably talk for like 10 years and never figure stuff out, but I totally enjoy talking to you.
1: Well, I really, really appreciate you uh, you being on the show. And I have one last quick question. When, okay. If people like put the label on you, right, that you're st- – I mean like when I talk about you, I think your story is insane. Like that's the word that comes into my mind first, wild, crazy, insane. Other people might say it's really tragic and sad. Um, How do you, like when you hear that, how do you react? And and how do you characterize your own story? Because I hear you and I I can hear the joy coming out of every word, but please.
2: Yes, thank you. You know, I did an interview with someone else like earlier today and this person kept saying, "Now I'm not going to talk about the dark, tawdry parts of your life. And I'm like, excuse me for a minute. Dark and tawdry is, uh, you know, I, I said people with substance use disorders need to hear some hope. So if you keep saying, oh my God, shush, 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 we're not going to talk about the dark and tawdry part, I have an issue with that. Right. Like, yes, things were tragic. Yes, terrible things happened. Yes, it was insane. Yes, I had a great time. I had a scary time. It was terrifying and and exhilarating, and never knew what to expect next, and, and, and. It's what you make of it, right?
1: Totally. You contain multitudes, like Bob Dylan.
2: That's right. I contain multitudes, and so do you.
1: All right. You are the greatest, Mackenzie. Thank you so much for coming on. I cannot thank you enough.
2: You're welcome. I'm going to go follow you. Did I follow you guys on Instagram or did I just not do that either?
1: You don't, you, you don't acknowledge my existence, but that's okay. I, I know we have a special bond, so I'm not... I'm I,
2: going to right now. I've got my phone in my hand. I'm, I'm coming for you.
1: Our Instagram is very unimpressive. Don't judge me on the basis of our, of our weak Instagram presence.
2: That's okay. You follow me back. or Do you follow me on
1: Instagram? Dude, I'm like, I follow every move you make. You have a picture. <laughs> I like it. Are you crazy? <laughs> All this right. You're the best. All right. I know I'm beating a dead horse and saying how exciting that was for me, but it was truly thrilling, thrilling for me to have my, not only my childhood, but my dopey fantasies all come to fruition. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. And, um, you know, that is the miracle of the dopey show. It is the miracle. That's the miracle of recovery right there. That your dreams can come true eventually. It works if you work it. Your disease is in the parking lot doing push-ups, one day at a time. Think, think, think. Well, I can't think of any. I can't think of any other uh, addiction cliches. But I am. I am like. Uh, I'm, I'm super psyched. I, I love that uh, we got Mackenzie Phillips. That's a, a hardcore dope that I can cross off the dopey wish list, which means, Jason Mewes, we're coming for you. Robert Downey Jr., watch your back, buddy. It's You're going to get hit with the dopey eventually, and I cannot wait until you do. Now, before we get moving on with the rest of the dopey business, I just want to say one more time for all the aspiring or established podcasters out there in the dopey nation— you should totally try Zencaster. They hook it all up for you. They connect you with your guests. They give you the studio quality sound, the HD video recording, the secured cloud backup, and automatically generated transcripts. It's like heaven, man. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Check it out for 30% off by using the promo code DOPEYPODCAST at Z E N C A S T R. Come, There's lots of good stuff coming down the pike, down the old dopey highway. I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil the good stuff that's coming, but there's big, big things are coming big things. But before we go, you have to know that I have like 6 billion pairs of dopey socks and two varieties. I still have a bunch of these new fangled big bird beanies, which is three B's and a real alliteration coming out of my mouth. And we also have tons of new Dopey gear. Supposedly the old school Rodrigo Dopey shirt, hoodie, and long sleeve is going to come out if our amazing partners at SRO Prints ever make it. They are an amazing print company out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Check us out at DopeyPodcast.com. If you want hats, stickers, fucking beanies, Venmo me, hit me up on Instagram. That's what the kids say. Hit me up. Hit me up, guys. Just hit me up. Anyway, I'm tired. It's fucking late. But before we go, I need to play this one last time because I think it is so tasty. I really enjoyed it. And speaking of tasty, I'm kind of hungry. And before I play this thing, I want to tell you about my new sinful late-night snack, which is graham crackers, single-serve chocolate pudding cup with cool whip as a sandwich sinfully delightfully delicious and for those who don't know that's what we call icebox cake in the big city but it's just a single serving a little sandwich okay now here we go brer brian doing his mashup of california dreaming into one day at a time followed by good so bad the jake from west virginia version Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. <laughs>
0: Dum it down, dum 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 down, dum 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 down, dum 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 down, dum 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 down, dum down, dum 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 dum
3: What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm gonna do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjo. thing's hard to keep in tune. y'all hear this makes it through the uh big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want if not i know it kind of sucks all right uh really appreciate it thanks y'all